official podcast of Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church at the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at wellchurchvt.com. Amen. Good morning. Can you hear me? Great. How is everyone doing? Good. Eh. I heard an eh. How many of you can relate to that, right? Yeah. Some of us can relate to eh sometimes, especially getting here this morning, trudging through the ice and the snow. Well, I am glad that I'm here with all of you this morning. We're continuing our series through the book of Acts. And so we're going to get started reading our text and I'm going to have a couple questions for you immediately following the reading of the text. So put your thinking caps on. Welcome to church. Y'all ready for this? this uh, I'm going to pop quiz you, all right? On the text, all right. So pay attention. So we're turning to Acts chapter 5. Uh, we've been in this series through, for a number of weeks now. And we're going to be starting in verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. How many of you are glad that when you bring your tithes and offerings to church at the well, you don't have to deliver them to the feet of Pastor Adam, right? And he's inspecting it, making sure that everything is appropriate and in an order, right? Now we have the joy box in the back. Uh, where you can give joyously and generously without compulsion, as Paul writes in Corinthians. So they brought it up, laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? So Peter has some insight into this. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. In the Greek, that word is Ananias expired, right? Like, your milk expires in the fridge. This is what happens to Ananias. Good morning. Welcome to church. I hope you're feeling encouraged thus far. In great fear came over all who heard of it, right? How many of you would be afraid if that happened, right? So the young men got up and covered him up. And after carrying him out, they buried him. How many of you are glad we don't have a youth ministry like this here at Church of the Wall, right? They're just waiting in the back ready. They're ready for when someone drops down. Okay, so <laughs> you can feel all of this positive energy in the room. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, said, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yeah, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test. Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last and the young men came in 
and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. That is our text this morning. So I have a couple questions for you. Um, But first, I'm just going to turn around, and if you want to run to the doors, you're like, no, this is not what I came to church for this morning. You can, okay? No, I'm just kidding. Well, you, you actually can run if you want. You're free to go at any moment. So first question uh, for you all this morning. Yesterday, Adam and his family left for vacation. They're going to be getting tans in Mexico and Cancun, enjoying tons of unlimited fruit juice, tacos all day, tacos for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. This is my question for you. Do you think it's coincidence or not that Adam planned his trip to Mexico as we get to Acts chapter 5? <laughs> and the story of Ananias and Sapphira, right? This is, you, you guys can answer this question. What do you think? I'm not going to tell you what I think because I'm on the schedule this morning, right? And we love Pastor Adam. But, <laughs> but in all seriousness, um, I thought it would be awesome if we could pray together for Adam and his family. Uh, how many of you know uh, Adam and his family, they carry a lot of emotional, spiritual burden uh, around with them, often thinking about many of us coming to our houses, coming to the hospital when we're sick, praying for us in our time of need, meeting up with, up with us uh, in uh, times of trials and tribulation that we might be going through and supporting us. And uh, that can also take a physical toll on your body. And so taking a vacation can be a profoundly spiritual thing to do, that having a time of rest for your body can actually revitalize your spirit and your soul as well. And uh, having a time of rest for your spirit and your soul can also help revitalize your body as well. And so can we pray for Adam and his family this morning? All joking aside, let's pray. God, we thank you um, for your grace. And we just pray that you would be with the Avery family. Send them uh, endless tacos and fruit juice. God, we are slightly jealous, so help uh, our hearts work out whatever we need to work out. But we pray that your presence and your spirit uh, would be with them, um, give them rest, give them abundant grace supernaturally and naturally, God. Um, may they experience the fullness of your rest that you have planned for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And so uh, my second question for all of you is, what's going on here in Acts chapter 5? What's going on? To which all of you respond with blank stares looking at me and ask, Ian, what are they paying you for, right? If you're asking us this question, strange stuff, a strange text, right? First, uh, I want to reiterate by saying something that Adam has mentioned throughout our series in the book of Acts, and it's this, that Luke is recording this earliest account of the followers of Jesus, the earlier early church as is, right? And so the chaos, the mess, the complexity, Luke isn't editing any of that out of the narrative, which makes sense, right? Because we don't experience life like we edit all those things out, right? 
We experience the mess. We experience the chaos. We experience the complexity. And so it's a part of the story. It's about life. Um, and so we see in, in, in the book of Acts that it's about life and community ordered by the Spirit of God in the midst of the chaos, not separate from it. And so Scripture includes complexity. Scripture includes complexity because our lives are complex, right? How many of you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, so uh, another note as we jump in, this is a difficult text, and that's okay. And so I'm not going to have all of the answers about this text for you this morning. I know, what are they paying me for, right? Right, but um, this can be a good thing because we often talk about the sermon here at Church at the Well as the beginning of the conversation, not the end of the conversation. And so a good sermon is always the first word, not the last word. It's one of the reasons we have discussion questions for you every week on the Bible app or at the table in the lobby so that you can take those and, and go out with someone and talk about the text together and wrestle with, wrestle, um, with these ideas and with these texts in community together or in your community groups. You can take these discussion questions and go through them. Um, and if you guys want to kind of get into the weeds a little bit more with me in a text like this, which I'm going to try to avoid kind of really getting into the thick of the weeds this morning because it is a difficult text, um, send me an email, ian at wellchurchvt.com. Let's, let's go out. Let's hang out. Uh, we'll even plan a night this week. If I get two emails, we'll plan a little small group, okay? So ian at wellchurchvt.com. We'll plan a time where we can discuss some of the complexities, the nuance, the difficulties of a text like this that maybe we cover or maybe we don't cover this morning. So, as I mentioned, I don't really want to get into the weeds with a difficult text like this, but rather, I want to look at some principles that can help us as we look at a text like this and as we read scripture and as we study scripture together as a community. What are some principles when we come to a text like this that can help, help us or aid us in our study or in our reading or in our, our devotion of a text like this? And so I have the principles. I'm just going to put them up for you before we go through them right up here on the screen. So the first principle is always look at the context for clarity. Now I'm going to define what these mean in just a moment. The second one is maintain a Jesus-centered hermeneutic. I gave you a lot of churchy buzzwords there. Sorry about that. The third one is uh, the questions we ask a text matter. And there's a parenthesis because this last principle is also a Sufjan Stevens song and it needs a parenthesis title as well which is don't add details that aren't there. So this first principle, look at the context for clarity. What this essentially means is we interpret, we uh, develop an understanding of a particular scripture that might be unclear with other scriptures that are clear. So we have to look at all of the context. Um, one of the, the most common things you see with a church split or divisions in the, in the middle of a church is someone has taken a, a hard text to deal with and they've interpreted that text absent of looking at the proper context. And so when we look to a, at a verse like uh, 
Acts chapter 5 that's difficult to deal with. It's important to look at the context. What are the surrounding verses? Not, not just what does this passage say, but what do the passages say around it? Uh, what is the larger theme of the book that we're reading? What, is the, what was the author, Luke, who wrote the book of Acts? What was his original intent in this book? Or we look at the audience. How would the original audience or the original readers of this book have understood this? And so um, we look to context for um, clarity. And not only do we look at the surrounding context in that book, but we also look to other portions of Scripture in the entire narrative of the Bible. We look to the clear Scriptures to understand that which is unclear. And after we've done that work, if there's still tension, if there's still not clarity, maybe that's there intentionally. And this is something that we don't do very well in the Western church is we're not okay with the tension and we're, we're not okay with a lack of clarity. It's hard for us to exist in the tension. How many of you know what I'm talking about in that? Like we want the answers. We want to come to a text like this and we want the pastor to stand up front and give us all the answers, right? Because that's what we come to church for. That's why we lay the tithes and the offerings at the apostles' feet, right? But uh, Often, Scripture leaves us with an absence of clarity. There's a tension, and, and sometimes that can be a good thing as well. And so if we put the work in and there's still tension, there's still mystery, um, don't get frustrated. Sit there a little bit longer. There's grace there in the mystery. There's a, an author by the name of Richard Rohr, and he speaks of God as a mystery, which is, can be offensive to some because there are whole structures of belief that are developed based on certainty and saying that we can define who God is. But he says this about God being a mystery. He said, God is a mystery. And he says, mystery is not that which is unknowable, but mystery is that which is endlessly knowable. And so to embrace mystery, to embrace lack of clarity or certainty is not to have a lower view of God or Scripture. It's actually to have a higher view of it. It's not that which is unknowable. It's that which is endlessly knowable. The second principle with all of these uh, buzz, buzzwords, churchy buzzwords, a Jesus-centered hermeneutic. One of the major issues that comes up when scholars look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 is how is this account congruent with the life, person, and work of Jesus, right? I mean, like, isn't all that death stuff, wasn't that like left behind with the Old Testament? Haven't we come to Jesus and he's revealed a God who is love, a God who goes to the cross? Um, isn't all this death stuff left behind? So first, scripture doesn't edit out complexity. There's tons of difficult texts to wrestle with in the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament. And also the Old Testament has tons of examples of grace, spontaneous generosity, mercy, forgiveness. And so uh, the, the scripture doesn't exist in these two kind of polarized places where we think of these separate categories of the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament revealed in Jesus. But these questions about death and what's up about it like, what's up with this Acts chapter 5? Bring up this important aspect of having a Jesus 
centered hermeneutic. And what I mean by that is our theology needs to be centered through the lens of the person and work of Jesus. Theology just meaning what we believe about who God is. And so uh, when I say the work of Jesus, I just, I just mean his life in the Gospels. How did Jesus live? How did he walk? And specifically his work on going to the cross. Now, I want to parse this thought out a little bit more than the other principles because this seems on the surface like a non-radical kind of duh thought to say in a church, right? Because when the pastor asks you a question, you can close your eyes and plug your ears and say Jesus, and that's going to be the right answer most of the time, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, So to say that we need to look to the person of Jesus to develop our theology can be like a duh thing to say, but I want to parse this out a little bit. Scripture is clear that God is revealed by the person of Jesus, that to know Jesus is to know God, the, the same God, the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In fact, Jesus is called the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So, um, uh, the same in the Old Testament, the same in the New Testament, but, but the New Testament actually expounds on this idea of Jesus revealing who God is. The New Testament actually claims that Jesus reveals not only who God is and, and the character of God, but it re- that Jesus reveals the fullness of who God is. There's something about knowing Jesus that, and, and knowing the Jesus on, on the cross that reveals something about the fullness of God a mystery that has been hidden for the ages, as Paul writes, is now revealed in the person and work of Jesus going to the cross. So, so however we talk about, however we describe, however we articulate God, God must first and foremost look like Jesus. So when we come to a passage like Acts chapter 5 and Ananias and Sapphira, whatever conclusion we come to, about the nature of a text like this, we would do well to ask, how does our reading of the text hold up to a Jesus-centered interpretation? And if it doesn't, if the God we're painting a picture of doesn't look like Jesus, um, doesn't look like the God whom Jesus reveals by going to the cross, the God of love who's willing to go to the furthest extents of suffering, in order to reveal his love to us. Maybe it's not the text fault. Maybe it's ours. Maybe we're getting the picture wrong because we're not asking the right questions. And so we can look and wrestle with a couple of these principles. We come to our third principle, right? Which is the questions we ask matter or don't add details uh, that aren't there. First, I want to tell you a story about a Jesus-centered hermeneutic. It's a personal story of mine when I was in Bible college. I had a friend named Chris Donald, and Chris Donald came from a very charismatic church. And I have, I'm somewhat of a closet charismatic myself. Uh, I like to say I'm a lowercase c charismatic. I believe in the gifts of the Spirit are available for the church here today. Um, but you're probably not going to catch me praying in tongues right up here on a Sunday morning with the microphone. Um, so I really valued my friendship with Chris, but he was really like a, a passionate person, you might say. How many of you have a friend like this in your life? It's a passionate person. You know someone like that. So uh, 
And I, I don't want to actually be critical of Chris because he actually had an incredible passion for the miraculous and for healings and for the prophetic. And I actually uh, could testify of uh, him being involved in God giving him a word of knowledge for people and seeing miraculous healings in his ministry, things that I, I don't see as common practice in the lives of most followers of Jesus I know. But I ran into Chris in the bathroom one day, as you do, and he looked at me, as you do in the bathroom. He said, Ian, and I don't want you ever see me in the bathroom. Don't, don't talk to me. That's like private space, okay? So he, he ran into Chris in the bathroom. He says, Ian, this is the question he asked me. I'm not kidding. He said, Ian, if God, you felt like the Holy Spirit was telling you to punch someone in the face so that they would be healed, would you do it? Not a joke. Just a real question from Chris. So something, I caught him at the right moment, I guess. Something he was mulling over in his brain. And I thought about it without laughing, even though I might have wanted to laugh. And I said, no, Chris, I would not punch someone in the face if I felt the Spirit of God telling me to punch someone in the face. Because I would have doubts that that was the Spirit of God. Because it's not consistent with the God whom I know revealed in Jesus Christ to be right? So it's a silly, interesting uh, question, but kind of uh, paints a little bit of a picture for us on what a Jesus-centered hermeneutic could look like. So I might, I might have uh, come to the conclusion that I wasn't hearing from the Spirit of God, but that I was hearing from the slice of cold pizza that I ate in the morning because I was a broke college student, right? So um, it's important to ask questions and about the details of a passage like this, like, did God kill Ananias and Sapphira? Isn't death like this left behind in the Old Testament? Doesn't a narrative like this have no place after Jesus? Does, P does Peter curse Ananias and Sapphira? Does he have a supernatural ability to curse them? And so it's important for us to not add details to the text that aren't there even though you could probably have some really invigorating, interesting conversation and debate around those questions, right? The more important questions are, why does Luke include this account in the book of Acts? How does this story fit into the larger narrative? Which is why we covered kind of these principles and looking so we can learn to ask the right questions of a text. How many of you are with me? How many of you, those are some helpful questions, some helpful principles for us to kind of, now let's jump back into the text and read it perhaps with a new set of eyes. But I actually want to start a few verses earlier in Acts chapter 4, where Luke is actually setting up what happens in Acts chapter 5. And this is what Luke writes, and the congregation, the gathering together of followers of Jesus, the church, of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony of the resurrected, to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all, for there was not a needy person among them, for all who are owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as they had need. 
And now let's go back to verse 1 of Acts 5. Uh, but a man named Ananias, his wife Sapphira, they sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard it. The young man got up, covered him, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours. Luke's a doctor, right? He's recording the details that matter. This is something we see Luke do over and over. So if there's not, if there's not a detail in there, we could probably guess that Luke meant there to not be that detail included. So uh, his wife came in not knowing what had happened, and Peter responded, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. Doesn't include that detail. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, breathe her, um, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came in, found her dead. They carried her out, buried her beside her husband, and great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. Now, as we look at these two passages side by side, we're given the proper context for what's going on here with Ananias and Sapphira. Like, what's, what's the sin? What's the sin? Is it the amount? Because Luke doesn't record the amount. Did they break some sort of commandment or law? The church, as Luke describes, was experiencing the abundant grace of God. And how did this power and presence of the Spirit of God work itself out, flesh itself out in that early community, right? They experienced abundant grace. There was, we see spontaneous generosity. Uh, Luke records that there is great power in the testimony of the resurrected Jesus, um, and that there wasn't a needy person among them. That's something to do with this grace and this unity, something that the Spirit's doing in their midst was resulting in spontaneous generosity, even to the point where material possessions, physicality, how they viewed those things, their perspective on, on physicality, material possessions was changing. This is what we see in the church. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira had nothing to do with them breaking some sort of commandment or law by not giving the full amount of the property they sold to the church. In fact, nowhere in Acts is this commanded, this generosity. It seems to be a spontaneous grace-initiated response to what the Spirit of God is doing in their community. The, the sin of Ananias and Sapphira that, was that they broke away from the togetherness that the early church was experiencing through the Spirit binding the community of Jesus' followers together. This is confirmed by Peter's word. This brings a little bit of meaning to Peter's words that he says to Sapphira, you agreed together with Ananias. They broke away from the fellowship, the koinonia. The, the, the sin had nothing to do with the amount 
of money, but the deceit, the breaking away from the Spirit and the Spirit's presence in the community. Now, I want to ask a question about some act. Who, who do we see as actors in these texts? Who's present? In Acts chapter 4, we see the Spirit of God is an active agent in the church, and the consequences of the Spirit of God at work in the church are what? We read it, right? One heart and one soul. Great power in testifying of the resurrected Jesus. When the Spirit of God is active, we see abundant grace and no needy person. Let's contrast that with chapter 5 in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Um, First thing I want to point out, nowhere is God mentioned as an actor in the sequence of events in Acts chapter 5. Nowhere is God mentioned as an actor in the sequence of events. So we have Ananias and Sapphira, right? We have Peter. He speaks, and it seems that Peter has prophetic insight or wisdom, right? Um, So potentially the Spirit of God is giving him that wisdom or that insight into what's going on. So we have the action of Peter. Peter speaks out pretty harshly to Ananias and Sapphira. Peter is someone who authenticity would have mattered a lot to because he was the one to whom Jesus asked Peter, why, you know, do you love me? After Peter denied Jesus three times. So authenticity would have been important to Peter. But nowhere is God mentioned as an actor. Who else else do we see? What are the other characters we see in the story in Acts chapter 5? The young men, right? So there's young men. They are the, the ones who come in, they carry the bodies out, and they prepare bodies for burial. They bury them. They bury Ananias and Sapphira. So one more actor we see in Acts chapter 5, and it's important. Peter asks Ananias, he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Why has Satan filled your heart? Now, this is an important detail in understanding this text, because if you were to say to me, or if you were to ask, um, is God killing Ananias and Sapphira incongruent with the person of Jesus who reveals God, I would say you're right. I'd say you're right. Luke's point then in Acts chapter 5, reading the context for clarity, of a Jesus-centered hermeneutic, is not to strike fear in the readers of this narrative. Though the early church, this was a moment that brought great fear in their midst, right? His point is to show us that a life orchestrated and organized by the Spirit of God looks like. This is what the the purpose of the book of Acts is, to show us what a life and a community organized and orchestrated by the Spirit of God looks like. And we have descriptions of that throughout the book of Acts. Unity, testimony of a resurrected Jesus, great power, abundant grace. We see spontaneous generosity. We see physical, practical, tangible needs being met in the community of followers of Jesus. This is what happens when God shows up, when the Spirit of God is at work, and a community of faith uh, actually should move people into a place of abundant life. But Luke also wants to point out that God is never going to force his will on individuals and the decisions we make have consequences. So it would be improper to conclude that the point of Luke's story is this. 
be careful or God will smite you, right? Because some of us have wrestled with that fear even coming to church, right? I mean, I don't have it all in order this week. My life is chaotic, messy, and then you come and we open up Acts chapter 5 and you're praying, God, forgive me. I am coming to church a sinner. Please, I don't want to drop dead this morning. That's not why I came to church as well, right? But, but something compels us because we want, we want to know what it is to experience a life that's filled with the Spirit of God, abundant life, as the authors of Scripture write, uh, eternal life, as Jesus articulates. But uh, so Luke's point of the story is unity, abundant grace, spontaneous generosity. They're all accessible through us, through the resurrected Jesus and the presence of his spirit in our community, but we also can reject it. So Luke's not advocating for sinful behavior or anything like that, but he's communicating something much larger than be moral or, or else, right? Be moral or else is just sometimes what we get from a text like this. The social ethics that we see in the book of Acts are a response to a life that's filled with the Spirit. And so if we're to conclude anything about a passage like this, it's that death is what happens outside of the will of God, apart from the Spirit of God, not because of God. When God shows up, he brings life. He brings life. God is an agent of life, not an agent of death. There's lots of details to wrestle with and debate about, but to me, God is the source of life. God is the giver of life is not one of those details. When God is active, results in abundant life and grace. Jesus insists, it's interesting that we see Satan mentioned here in this passage, that the enemy is here to steal, kill, or destroy. That's not what God is about. God's the giver of life. So we, when we interact with a scripture like this, when we talk about Jesus as a church, uh, we need to be very clear that pursuing Jesus is to pursue life, is to pursue life. Too often we can twist a scripture like this and then use it where then the main articulation of Christian spirituality becomes just, uh, just scare people because of fear of death, Right? How many of you have seen this or have heard this testimony of the church, right? The, testimony, the church has a really bad testimony of this, right? But that's not good news. It's not an interesting story. And that's a story that starts in Acts 5. It ignores Acts 2, where the Spirit is active. It ignores Acts 4, where the Spirit is active. And it ignores the entire book where the Spirit of God is active. And all sorts of people from all sorts of places who speak all sorts of languages, languages are experiencing the abundant grace, vitality, and life of the Spirit of God when, when they least expected it, right? And so we come to something like this, and the conclusion is um, that the vitality, grace, and life of the Spirit of God are available to us here and now. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community reintroducing Jesus in Vermont through worship, service, creativity, and community.